Please open your Bibles. Today our Bible reading is from Genesis 49, verse 29 to 50, verse 3. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The fields and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. When Jacob had finished, oh, Jacob threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, please um, leave your Bibles open. We're covering about eight chapters today, and so we'll be uh, going through it fairly quickly as we come to the end of our six-week series on, on Jacob. Uh, now, not many people can claim to be the father of his country, but George Washington is one of them. He commanded the Continental Army during the American Revolution. He led the convention that wrote the U.S. Constitution, and he served as the country's first president. There's no question that George Washington was larger than life and played a crucial role in the founding of the United States. As a statesman and hero of the American Republic, it's not surprising that he's depicted in the most flattering light. And so even though he owned over a hundred slaves, we're quickly told that he treated them well. Even though he traveled by coach like a king, and he refused to shake anyone's hand like royalty, we're quickly told that that's what it means to be president. But how much of what we know about him is fact, and how much of it is legend? After Washington died, Americans knew of his public life, but very little of his private life, and some people were keen to fill that void. One such person was Mason Locke Weems. Uh, Weems wrote one of Washington's first biographies, and his entire premises was that the unparalleled rise and elevation of Washington were due to his great virtues. Weems wanted Americans to look up to Washington as a role model. And so in his biography of Washington, he tells a story he claims was told to him uh, by an elderly friend of the Washington family. So when Washington uh, was six years old, you might have heard this story before, he accidentally damaged his father's cherry tree, his father's beloved cherry tree with an axe. But instead of pretending like it never happened or that he had nothing to do with it, he went to his father and says these now famous words. I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know I can't tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Now the point of the story is obvious, isn't it? Even at the age of six, Washington couldn't tell a lie. He, he's that honest. He's that virtuous. And, and that he would do what no other kid would do at six years old. And that is to fess up. But is this story fact or fiction? Well, according to scholars, there's no evidence that it ever happened. Even though Weems was an Anglican clergyman, he was seen as a moralist and an opportunist and almost certainly made up the story. Yet despite that, 
The story has been made into books. It's appeared in American readers and textbooks and has come to define Washington's character for generations of Americans. Now, you and I are surprised by that, are we? Because that's what often happens. We have a tendency to put our heroes on a pedestal. We downplay their vices and elevate their virtues. We want to see them in the best possible light and be an inspiration to our children and their children. But the Bible doesn't do that for the father of another country. As we've seen over the past few weeks and studied the life of Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel was anything but perfect. He hasn't been an inspiration to be adored and a model to be followed. In fact, the opposite is true. Imagine you're an Israelite parent and you have a son, Nathan. And when it's spare time and you're taking Nathan in, Nathan goes to you, can you tell me a story, a story about our father, Jacob? And you tell them, you tell Nathan the story of Jacob's birth. Well, Nathan, Jacob was a heel grabber from the moment he was born. When his older brother Esau was born, Jacob was grabbing at his heel. That's why he's called Jacob. He's a deceiver. The father of our nation is a heel grabber, a deceiver and a schemer, a trickster and a cheat from the very moment he was born. Uh, the next day, Nathan goes to school, and he comes home from school tells you, hey, uh, Dad or Mom, uh, we learned about our father Jacob at school. Did you know the father of our nation was really shifty? When Esau came back from hunting and he was hungry, Jacob was an opportunist. He used that opportunity to buy his brother's birthright with a bowl of lentil stew. And then comes Saturday. It's the Sabbath for you. you. You go to the synagogue as a family, and the rabbi opens up to Genesis 27. And preachers, today's passage is about our father Jacob, the, father, the founder of our great nation Israel. When Isaac the patriarch wanted to bless Esau, his firstborn, Jacob dressed up as his brother, deceived his father, and stole the blessings of the firstborn. You're getting the picture, aren't you? Over and over again, Jacob's life isn't very inspiring. In fact, it's almost an embarrassment. I mean, if you were to recount the story of your hero, the father of your nation, wouldn't you want to portray him in a better light so that people will adore him and children will be inspired by him? Just like Americans have done with Washington. Wouldn't the Israelites wanted to have done the same for Jacob, the founder of their great nation, Israel? But that's not what we've seen in our study of Jacob, is it? Jacob's story isn't very flattering. It's not very inspiring. Is it because the person who redacted and, and put the stories together didn't like Jacob? Or, or that he had a beef with him and a, a score to settle? Well, it's not, is it? Because God's word is his infallible word. This is God's inspired word. That The stories we've read are not myth and legend, but history and fact. And it's been recorded as is for us, not only because it's true and it's what's happened, but because the real story, the real hero of the story, and the founder of the great nation of Israel, wasn't ultimately Jacob, but God. And the purpose is for us to realize that God is the father who we should look to, and the one who we should inspire uh, to be, the father we should adore, the one we should praise. Because the story doesn't end with Jacob, but with Israel. For God transformed Jacob from the one who deceived to steal God's blessings to Israel, the one who struggled with God and with men and has overcome. It might have taken God 20 years to make Jacob less of a scoundrel and more of a saint. 
But when he returned to the promised land and looked at death in the face, in the face of his brother Esau, he no longer hid behind his family and feared his brother's sword. He went to meet his brother as he trusted in the promises of God. And so the story doesn't end with Jacob fleeing from his murderous brother, but reconciled with his avenging brother. Because God was with him, and God protected him. God was gracious to him, and kept his promises to him, even though he didn't deserve it. And so no longer does Jacob have to strive to get what he wants. God will now strive for Israel to give him what he's promised. The promises of Lob, land, offspring, and blessing. The promise of living in the promised land with children as numerous as the sand on the seashore, under the rule and protection of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's the one who made the promises and God will see it done. For the point is that God will bless and God will keep his promises, not on human human merit, but by the grace of God, not on human performance, but by the promises of God. And that's absolutely fundamental because Jacob's story doesn't end there either. The threat to the promises of God remains at risk all the time. Chapter after chapter after chapter, we see this. So in chapter 34, Jacob's daughter Dinah is defiled by a local guy called Shechem. And so her brothers Simeon and Levi devise a plan. They deceive Shechem and kill his entire household. Then in chapter 35, Jacob's firstborn son Reuben does the unthinkable. He sleeps with Jacob's concubine Bilhah and defiles his father's bed. Then in chapter 37, we're told that Jacob loves Joseph more than all his other sons. And so all the other sons hate Jacob, uh, Joseph. Sorry, They plan to kill Joseph, but instead sell him off as a slave and tell Jacob that some ferocious animal devoured him. But then it gets worse. Chapter 38, Jacob's son Judah ends up sleeping with a woman who pretended to be a shrine prostitute. But she wasn't a prostitute. She was his own daughter-in-law and ends up having twin boys by her. This is not a very happy-go-lucky family, is it? And neither is the queen's family at this moment. You might recognize this man with the queen. I mean, over the past several years, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, the Queen's favourite son, has been in the news a lot, and all for the wrong reasons. From his association with Jeffrey Epstein to his court proceedings with Virginia Gouffray, he's an embarrassment to the firm and has brought disgrace to the Queen. It's, it's horrible what's been said and what he's been accused of, but it's still nothing compared to the first family of Israel, isn't it? If the story of Jacob was a modern story, his family would appear on the front page of every news outlet every day. With scandal after scandal after scandal, it would be the greatest news of our time. Netflix would have bought the rights for millions and it would have been an amazing miniseries that would have been a hit. For there's deception and murder, adultery and incest, favoritism and slavery. And as we've seen throughout the series, Jacob isn't the kind of friend we would choose and certainly not the kind of guy we would elect as president or as founding father of a God's nation. And that's the point, isn't it? The Bible keeps presenting us with plain truth. There's no clickbait. There's just raw facts. Jacob and his family are far from perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And You can't make this up, can you? That's why it's God's word. 
You can't make it up. You wouldn't make it up. If you wanted to write a story about a fa- the father of your nation, you're not going to write up about their misdeeds and report them in this light. But this has been written because it's what's happened. It's history. And in some sense, it's confronting, isn't it? Because if God can love Israel's first family, despite all their sins and all their crookedness and all their wickedness, then we know that God can love us too. Because at the end of the day, when we read the Bible, we're not just reading stories. We're being confronted with our own sins, with our own unbelievable stories, like we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. Yet we keep seeing God's faithfulness, God's grace, God's undeserved love on sinful people. Like when we've dressed up our CV to make ourselves look better than we really are. We've committed the sin of deception, of lying, yet God still sent his son. Like when we're behind the wheel of a car and someone cuts in front of us only to slow right down and slowing us right down even though we're in a hurry. We're immediately filled with anger and rage at the driver and so we've committed murder in our hearts. Yet Jesus still died for us. And like when we've looked at someone lustfully and have gone places with them in our minds that we shouldn't have. We've committed adultery. Yet Jesus is coming back to take us home. You see, when we read the Bible and come across stories like Jacob's, we can either judge Jacob and look down on him and his sins and think that we're better, that we're so much more deserving of God's love and grace and affection. Or we can identify ourselves with Jacob and realize that we're as sinful as he was and become as desperate as he was to truly believe in the promises and power of God. I mean, if a journalist followed us around and had the ability to read our minds and assess our hearts and their job was to publish what we thought and felt and did every day on Facebook or Instagram, we wouldn't have anywhere to hide. We won't be able to pretend we're better than we really are. It'll simply be the plain truth, as we've seen in Scripture, that we're sinners through and through, just like Jacob. And if that happened, we wouldn't have many friends left, would we? You see, friends, we're not even the heroes in our own stories. Because at the end of the day, we're not the ones who can forgive sins. We're not the ones who want to pay for our sins. And we're certainly not the ones who have conquered the grave. We're sinners in need of God's salvation. We're on death row in need of God's grace. And that's what Jacob needed over and over again. Because he should have known the devastating effects of favoritism. Yet he still loved Joseph more than his other sons. And he destroyed his family. His sons should have known the devastating effects of deception, yet they deceived Jacob and others and they destroyed their family. Yet despite all of their sins, what do we see? We see God as faithful, God as promise-keeping, God as powerful to keep his promises to Jacob even to the end of his life. And so now that I've given you my longest introduction ever, we now come to today's passage and come to the end of Jacob's life. We find ourselves in the land of Egypt and not in the promised land. And the reason is that there was a severe famine. And the only place to get food at this time was in Egypt. And if you remember Joseph, even though his brothers tried to sell him as a slave, 
and did sell him as a slave, God was with him and protected him, so that through him God's people will be saved through famine and certain death. And so after Joseph is prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, he eventually sends for Jacob and his entire family to come to Egypt where they will be fed and where they'll, be, where they'll flourish. And so despite the famine and having to leave the promised land, despite the journey and having to live in a foreign land, they prospered. They prospered in number and in possessions. God was entirely faithful in making him fruitful. So please have your Bibles open. Chapter 47 now, verse 27. 47, 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So Jacob ends up living in Egypt for 17 years. He got there at 130. He's now 147 years old. His eyes dim, his body's flailing. He calls for Joseph in chapter 48. He strips Reuben of his firstborn rights because of what Reuben had done. He defiled his father's bed. And what he does in chapter 48 is that he then gets Joseph and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and, and, and Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons as his own. And they become tribes in Israel. The firstborn is now belongs to Joseph's sons. Then Jacob calls his 12 sons together in Genesis 49. And he blesses each son as heads of the tribes of Israel and foretells each son's fortunes and future. We see a man here on his deathbed, completely and 100% firm and in believing in the promises and power of God. So chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Now, we don't have time to cover all the sons, so let's just have a look at the first few. Verses 3 to 4 is about Reuben. Now, even though Reuben was preeminent and in pride and power, he will have preeminence no more, for he had defiled his father's bed. And that's what happens in Israel's history. Fast track a few hundred years, when they take possession of the land, the tribe of Reuben have only a small inheritance in the eastern corner of Israel. And they become an insignificant tribe in Israel's history. You almost don't hear of them. Verses 5 to 7 is about Simeon and Levi. Now, since they had slain in their anger, no blessing is promised to either of them. Instead, they will be scattered in Israel. And that's what happens in Israel's history. The Levites end up becoming the priestly tribe. They don't have territory of their own. They live amongst the other tribes. And so they are scattered and Simeon is so small in the southern part of Israel that they essentially dissolve into the greater and bigger tribe of Judah. They essentially disappear. But the question on everyone's mind as Jacob blesses one son and foretells their future, one son after another, as they come to their father's deathbed, everyone is wondering what? What do you think they're wondering? They're wondering who will bear the promised child. Who will be the son of Eve who will crush the serpent? Who will reverse the curse of sin and death? Which child, which tribe will it belong to? 
Now, if Jacob had his way, if you were Jacob, who would you choose? You'd give it to Joseph, wouldn't you? Because Joseph's your favorite son from your favorite wife. And he has just saved you and his, your entire family. Without him, you would have died and perished in the promised land. Hands down, you'd, you would have chosen Joseph, wouldn't you? It's exactly what Isaac tried to do with Esau. You'd expect Jacob to now do for Joseph. But here's where we know that what's been recorded is true. Because what we see now is that Jacob doesn't speak his mind, but he speaks the mind of God. Because when we get to Judah, who not only married multiple Canaanite women, tried to sleep with a prostitute, but bore twins to his own dead son's wife, listen to what Jacob says to Judah in front of all his brothers. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You could almost hear it, can't you? That their other brothers would be listening and screaming, What? Dad, what? Reuben stuffed up and he's punished. Simeon and Levi stuffed up and they're punished. Judah stuffed up so badly and you bless him? You bless him. You don't punish him. You bless him and he'll overpower his enemies. You bless him and you expect us brothers to bow down to him? But if the brothers thought that was outrageous, listen to what Jacob says next in verse 9. You are Jake, uh, Judah. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Judah's an apex predator like a lion. Judah is not someone you're gonna have you're gonna be wanting to mess around with. For we see why in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now the scepter is the staff of a king. It's the symbol of the king's power and authority. And here we're told, even before Israel becomes a nation, even before Israel possesses this promised land, we're already told that how God's going to keep his promise. God will raise up a king who will rise from the tribe of Judah, but he won't just be the king of Israel because we're told that the obedience of the nations shall be his as well. And he will bring such prosperity that wine will become as common as water. Verse 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than white. When Jacob was on his deathbed, he was a man of unwavering faith in the promises of God. Even though his sons were sinful and wicked men just as he was, he knew from experience that God's faithful to his promises. And so even if his sons sin. God will forgive. Even if they go astray, God will bring them back. And even if they kill his son, God will be glorified. And he was right to put his faith in God, wasn't he? Because years later, a son was born 
from the child of Eve, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. His name was Jesus. And when he came from his father's side to live as one of us, his story was also recorded for all of us, just like Jacob's. In fact, we have four records of his life, four Gospels, from four perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they are not myths or legend, but accurate accounts of his life, and they all tell us the same story. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And when he was invited to the wedding of Cana, as he started his public ministry, the wine ran dry. And he performed his first miracle and turned water into wine so that wine was as common as water. And when he hung on the cross to die for your sins and mine, for Jacob's sins and Israel's sins, there above him were the words, This is the King of the Jews. And when the thief on the cross asked Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Even though the thief on the cross sinned his entire life, when he was on his deathbed, as it were, cried out to Jesus, what happened? Jesus made him a promise. He, Jesus promised him paradise. And three days later, the king of the Jews would rise to rule every nation forever and ever. The scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. And the obedience of the nations will be his, for Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is on the right hand of the Father as we speak. You see, friends, the story of Jacob is the story of the gospel. The story of blessings, not on merit, but on grace. Not on performance, but on promise. The story of Jacob is our story. And so when Jacob breathed his last, Joseph buried him in the promised land. And when the thief on the cross breathed his last, he was with Jesus in paradise. And when we breathe our last, may we see Jesus as our Saviour King, so that we might live with him forever and ever, where the wine is as common as water. Amen.